You're listening to The Love Yegg Show. If our city could talk, these are the stories it would tell about the people, places, and passion in Edmonton. We interview difference makers in our community. Please welcome your hosts, Sherry Beauchamp and Jesse McCracken. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Love the Egg Show. My name is Sherry Beauchamp, and I'm here with Jesse McCracken. Hello, everybody. We have a very exciting guest today. <laughs> very, very exciting guest, Dr. Shauna Pan- Pandya. Sorry, Pandya. You got it. I got it. Pandya. Got it. Um, so Dr. Pandya is an incredible, incredible force in, in Edmonton. And we're really lucky for her to um, to have her on the show. And I'm looking at your bio and I'm thinking, man, this lady is unbelievable. And I also don't necessarily understand all of the things in your bio. <laughs> so I would love for you to... to um, Tell us who who you are and and what what you're doing these days. Yeah, um, thank you so much um, for the warm welcome. So for those who don't know, my name is Dr. Shauna Pandya, and every day for me is like a box of space medicine chocolate, so you don't know what you're going to get. So quick intro would be I'm a physician, scientist, astronaut candidate with the International Institute for Astronautical Sciences, Aquanaut, um, Explorer, pilot and training, skydiver, um, advanced rescue diver, um, and then I also advise um, multiple commercial space companies as a medical advisor, and I work with Luxonic Technology as the VP of Immersive Medicine. Um, We can chat about that for those interested in medical um, VR for diagnostics. And yeah, there's a lot. So hopefully we'll get to it. Um, But that's a quick introduction to me. That's awesome, man. (laughs) So you're from Edmonton? Yeah, 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 yeah. Are you you from Edmonton? Like I see all your training, some of your trainings in the U of A Um, Yeah, yeah. So I was born in Brandon, Manitoba, because um, my dad was a physiotherapist. He trained in Mumbai. And once he was done, he had job offers in Kuwait and Australia, all over the world. And he decided Brandon, Manitoba in the middle of winter, minus 35 degrees, (laughs) next adventure. Um, So that's where I was born. But I moved um, to Sherwood Park when I was uh, 11 months old and pretty much, um, you know, have done most of my schooling here. I've done med school here. I've done a lot of residency here. Um, so there's, uh, I call Edmonton home base. Amazing. So when, like, I would love to know a little bit more about you and when that's kind of bit of like wonder and adventure, where did that come from? And when was like your first memory where you're like, this is, I want to be in space. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question because, you know, it started young. Um, I was a kid who wanted to be an astronaut, but never grew out of that dream. So I was lucky enough to be growing up during the nineties when Canada's first ever female astronaut, Dr. Roberta Bondar flew to space. And I looked at her and I said, well, she's Canadian. I'm Canadian. She's female. I'm female. So now all I need to do is go be a neuroscientist, physician, astronaut. Boom. It's done. You know, that's the way your mind works. And so like from an early age, you know, in junior high, all my assignments, um, I went to French immersion. So all my assignments be French assignments. I'm going to space and astronauts. Um, And then I realized, well, you can't go to school to be an astronaut. So you have to, you know, 
pick something and that's where the neuroscience aspect came in. So I knew I was going to study neuroscience. And then by the time I was 15, I said, well, if medicine's a goal, let's go aim to be a neurosurgeon. Um, so like all of this fell into place at a very um, early age. And then somewhere along the way, I remembered that this dream was propelled by the love of space. Um, so I took some time off before medical school to do a master's degree at the International Space University in Strasbourg, France, which is like Starfleet Academy come to life. Um, it's, you know, uh, it's a motto is international, intercultural, inter interdisciplinary. We had 50 students from 31 com uh, countries uh, during my year there. Um, you know, you learn everything about space policy, law, life sciences, um, medicine, um, just a very cool year. And then as part of that, I interned in the crew medical support office at the European Astronaut Center. And that's when I really realized you can make space medicine part of your career. So that really was the um, launch pad, um, if you'll forgive the pun. Wow. Were your parents like, what do we do with this child and how do we like hone her, her gifts <laughs> and her um, curiosity? Yeah, I like to joke there's always a little bit of push-pull there. Um, they're typical uh, Southeast Asian parents. So I think when you're when you're young, you know, the question is like, you know, don't look at boys. Like, why, why aren't you studying more? And then when you're older, it's like, why are you studying so much? Why aren't you looking at boys? Like, if there's always some expectation you have to um, live up to. That being said, you know, they are the people who have gone the extra mile for me. They're the people who will drive me to and pick me up from the airport at ridiculous um, o'clock in the night. Um, you know, they're the ones helping me sort out missed flights and things like that. So, you know, having that support base personally, and then even throughout medical school to see the value of the opportunities I was given really put me um, where I wanted to be. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And again, like, when do you find time just to uh, relax and enjoy and take care of self? <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. I have a lot of good people in my life who remind me that, you know, it's okay to take it down a notch. Um, I have, um, you know, I have my best friend who goes from, you know, she'll know my schedule from minute to minute. So she'll say, hey, you know, why are you still in Sherwood Park? I thought you were starting ER coverage in this real town at five tonight. And it's like, no, I thought it was starting at 8am tomorrow. And it's like, oh, Hey, good thing you told me because I'm going to hit the road now. Um, you're like, you know, why are you working so much? It's okay to take a day off. Um, yeah. You know, I have really good people in my life. And the other thing is like, I love what I do. So that's why I can go, you know, 24 seven because everything I do is exciting to me. So if it wasn't, it would, you know, it would be a recipe for burnout, but it isn't for me. Um, you know, it's making time to recharge every day for me. Part of that includes working out. Um, that's really critical. And then coffee. Coffee's really good. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> You're, you also do um, a lot of speaking. I do, yeah. You talk on, um, I see some stuff here on YouTube on success, failure, and and pushing the limits. It sounds like um, that's kind of like one of these things, the dance, you know, of people who are driven uh, to be high achievers and do great things with their life. It's sort of like figuring out, you know, how to overcome failure, how to use it, leverage it for success, and then, you know, finding those limits along the way. Yeah, um, so I do a lot of speaking and I have three TEDx talks to date. Um, two are in Edmonton. So one was TEDx uh, Edmonton on innovation, um, or it's called Everything I Knew About Innovation Was Wrong. And then the one that you're referring to was TEDx Alberta um, on uh, failure, success, resilience, pushing the limits. And then um, my 2019 talk was at the International Space University about um, discovering exploration. And each one of those has its own unique theme, um, but it's really funny because I think I was um, 
asked to do the resilience talk, you know, to talk about my successes. I was just getting started with um, the scientist astronaut um, uh, program at the IAS. Um, I think there was, there was a lot of expectation. I would talk about like, you know, habits that keep us going, but this was also a time when I had actually started off training as a neurosurgeon and it wasn't the path that I wanted to pursue. So I was actually moving out of that path and that felt like a failure. And it was sort of more about, Hey, you can not end up where you want to be. You can call it a failure, but you can also bounce back. Um, I think that resonated with a lot of people. Um, so that became one of my most viewed talks and, um, you know, it's still important. Um, whether you're, operating at your best, whether you're, you think you've hit rock bottom, um, you know, that resilience, that mental fortitude, that situativeness, that ability to keep going is so critical. Um, and what's really important to know about resilience is not thinking that it's, you know, an innate trait that you're born more resilient than I am, but it actually can be boiled down to key components that we can work on. Um, like maintaining that positive self-talk, telling ourselves that we got this, um, impulse control, not giving in to that desire to, that we want to give up or fail, um, breaking things down. So we just focus on the next step we need to get there. Um, positive social supports. Um, so focusing on, you know, the people that we have in our corner. And so there's a lot of research around this and it's, um, uh, you know, it, it tends to surprise a lot of people, but I think it's really relevant, especially, you know, given the past three years, global pandemics, um, when a lot of people had the rug pulled out under them, you know, they were thrown into an austere environment, whether they asked for it or not. So I think it's really critical to talk about. Do you think that as a whole, just that conversation has just like evolved so much in the last couple of years where there is so many more resources to like remind yourself about positive self-talk and like, where did, did you pick that up from a young age or was it just something that you kind of learned over time? It took hitting what I thought was rock bottom and, um, you know, thinking I'd failed and then realizing that, you know, I still, you know, I still had a pulse. I still had a mission to complete on this earth. Um, and so it took really, you know, saying that, well, I'm not where I want to be. How do I get there? And it was really funny because when I was, um, transferring out of that program into, um, another program, you know, the, the postgraduate, um, medical education office at the university of Alberta, like they were, um, you know, they were, they were supportive and they were saying, well, you have to learn to be resilient. And I was like, what does that even mean? So finally, one day, you know, it just done a whim. I just Googled it and then said, okay, well, it's, there's actually the helpful step here, but in answer to your question, um, the, the conversation has evolved a lot because when I started talking about this, um, I was talking about cultivating individual resilience, which is an important part of the conversation because every single one of us has a role to play in making ourselves more adaptable, more able to bounce back from suboptimal outcomes. Uh, but the bigger project, uh, the bigger conversation that becomes a part of it is something that's come to the forefront in medicine and also needs to come to the forefront of the bigger conversation of resilience, which is um, systemic resilience. Um, because for example, in medicine, it's a very tough career. It's, um, you know, you're working insane hours, you're seeing some very, very sick people. Um, so we can, you know, we can tell individuals to be resilient, but we can also cultivate the system to be more forgiving with more of a safety net. Um, so one example of that is work hour restrictions. Um, in truly investing in employee wellness. So now I also talk about systemic resilience uh, and engineering the system to be more supportive um, for performance, not just for, you know, ourselves as individuals, but uh, ourselves as teams. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Oh, so much good conversation. Oh my gosh. I feel like there's just so many things that I want to ask you. And <laughs> there's so many way, different places that this can go. But um, so what exactly is space medicine? Because I know we're mentioning it a lot. And so what, what exactly is that? And what drew you to it? That's a great question. So space medicine, I often get asked like, what, you know, what do those two terms have in common? They're just so disparate, like space is space and medicine is, you know, you go to the doctor <laughs> and you're sick. Um, and my answer is space is trying to kill you. So um, when we talk about the space light environment, um, there's the obvious one of zero G. So every single bodily system is affected by the zero G environment. Our bones lose density, our muscles lose mass, our fl fluids shift upward. Um, and long-term that has lots of effects on the body that we need to compensate for. Um, otherwise, um, you know, we can lose bone density to the point of becoming osteoporotic. We can be at more risk for fractures. Um, the cerebrospinal fluid that 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 brain and spine juice that bathes our sp spines and 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 brains um, it shifts upwards and it can create increased pressure on the backs of our eyes. So those things need to be um, mitigated and protected against for long duration space flight. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just zero g. We haven't talked yet about the increased radiation environment. We haven't talked about the stress of the psychology of being on an operational schedule that on your on the international space station is scheduled down to the five minute mark. You're in a very closed, isolated resource limited space. Um, you have to get along really well with your crewmates. No one wants to be that astronaut that's voted off the spacecraft. That always makes it awkward. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, the, the, when we talk about missions to the moon and eventually Mars, we talk about time delay and the distance. Um, and when talking about Mars, you know, depending on how the Earth and Mars are aligned, that can be up to a 46 minute round trip conversation delay. So then that comes into play with your operations and your medical care. Um, and then we also talk about, you know, everything else, which falls, you know, we, um, we uh, call that hostile environment. So we talk about lunar dust. Um, we know from the Apollo missions that all of that lunar dust um, was a potent skin irritant. It irritated eyes. It irritated the breathing systems of the Apollo astronauts. Um, the altered day-night cycles. When you're on the International Space Station, you are subjected to 16 sunrise and sunset cycles per 24-hour periods. So you're experiencing a sunrise sunset cycle every 90 minutes. Um, if you're at the moon's equator, your day-night cycle is 14 days of day and 14 days of night. So um, all of these things can really affect your performance, affect your sleep schedule, affect your stress, affect you know how how happy you are, how cranky you are to um, be uh, part of that mission. So all of that comes back into performance, wellness, space medicine, um, and astronaut health. Wow. So is this with the idea that there's going to be more and more people going up, up there or that we want to stay longer when we're there? Both. Yeah. So that's a great question. So um, when we talk about typically so far, we've been talking about space medicine through the lens of a space agency like NASA or the Canadian Space Agency. Um, and part of the way that these agencies mitigate risk is by selecting the healthiest of the healthy. So part of being an astronaut is being very, very good at your job, being a good teammate, but part of it is a bit of a medical genetic lottery because um, the path towards becoming an astronaut has been littered with the hopes and dreams of medically disqualified candidates. Um, they might've had a previous broken bone or a diabetes, or they might be colorblind, or they might have been, um, had a pinched nerve at some point. Um, and so, you know, they would have been great astronauts so part of um, when we talk about 
in answer to your question about how we view space medicine in the lens from the lens of a space agency, it's both preventative and then it's also looking at longer duration, more complex missions to further off destinations, starting with the moon in the later part of this decade. Um, so NASA has very publicly been working on and announced plans for the Artemis mission. So Artemis is twin sister of Apollo in Greek mythology, and it is NASA's plan to put the first woman, first person of color, and next man on the moon by the end of this decade, which is really exciting. Um, but the complexities of the space medicine that supports that mission needs to be considered as well. And then, you know, the moon is also said to be a testing bed for Mars. So then when you talk about the challenges of Mars, which is a six to nine month journey away with current transportation technologies, well, then you have a whole lot more uh, medical considerations on your hand. Um, and then coming back to your other question about opening up access with the rise of commercial space, this is probably the most exciting time to be interested in human spaceflight because in the past 18 months alone, since July 2021, we have seen the launch of suborbital and orbital civilian flights. We have seen Blue Origin, we have seen Virgin Galactic, we have seen SpaceX um, take humans to space, humans that may not have otherwise had the chance. Um, so we saw Wally Funk, who realized a 60 plus year journey to become a female astronaut, become the oldest astronaut to go to space in suborbital flight um, as an 82 year old. And then um, not too long after that, William Shatner beat the record as the first nonagenarian to go to space. And because of the flight profile, um, you know, it was a very short flight. It is safe enough to, um, you know, open up the demographics of who goes to space. And then when we look at the profile of the SpaceX Inspiration4 mission, that was the first all civilian mission um, in space. Um, it was a three-day mission. And these folks, you know, they were very, they were great teammates. Um, some of them, they were, they were all very highly qualified. One of them was the top 47 in the 2009 NASA selection. Um, but they've publicly said that they would have been medically disqualified had this been a NASA mission. So now we're changing the, the dialogue around who goes to space. And now we're taking it even steps further because what's really exciting um, on the one hand, we're trying to level the playing field. So when we talk about who's gone to space historically, it's been uh, 11 to 12% women and 1% black women. Um, so we need to even up the playing field a little bit. And then on top of that, it's again, as we've talked about the healthiest of the healthy, and now we see initiatives like the European Space Agency just announced its first ever para-astronaut. Um, so this is someone with a uh, lower limb amputation, but who's also a medical doctor, a surgeon, um, a Paralympian, like very, very um, competent as an astronaut, and they're performing feasibility studies to send this astronaut to space. The Astro Access Initiative, um, has sent has sent Astro Access ambassadors, so folks with mobility disorders, paraplegia, um, visual and audio um, disabilities, to parabolic flight. So zero G, so not quite space, but still to experience zero G. And they've sent off two campaigns um, to to say that hey, you know, um, we can make this space more accessible. And um, as of January, I've become uh, involved with the Norwegian Next Steps Initiative, which is the world's first commercial para-astronaut initiative, again, to allow those who may have typically not been um, allowed access to space, to give them access to space. Um, so it's been really, really um, exciting, even the past 18 months alone, just to see how space has opened up. And I think that we're just at the beginning of a very exciting journey of um, democratizing access to space. 
Oh my gosh. How exciting to be like a part of that at like, what is like the early stages for the most part of it, you know, it's just unbelievable. That must be very exciting. How do you create like a bucket list when you've got, like you've done all of these things? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Definitely there's things on my list that I um, want to do and that are very much on my list. Um, and that obviously includes going to space, um, contributing to space medicine in a way that helps create a long lasting legacy for the future of long duration uh, and exploration class space missions. But there's also a lot of benefit we bring from, we derive from space medicine. So bringing those benefits back to earth um, is really um, key because there's a lot of remote rural resource limited uh, areas on earth that can benefit from innovations and advances in and in space medicine. Definitely. We see that with remote and rural communities in Canada. So that's the bucket list. And um, honestly, I feel like I'm just getting started. Like I feel like there's so much more to be done. Um, And, you know, every day, just loving what I do along the way is a huge part of it. Yeah. Uh, You can hear it in your voice. Like you're just like, so excited like the passion that you exude when you're talking is just it's incredible oh my gosh right and then yeah. um, I need to know do you believe in aliens <laughs> you know I'm going to quote jo- uh, Jodie Foster from contact if there's no aliens it's an awful waste of space so um, <laughs> definitely I think probabilistically you know um, there's definitely extraterrestrial life out there and then when you look at the diversity um, of life on earth like you just look at octopi and you just look at how alien their physiologies are their blood is blue because they use copper to carry oxygen um, to their tissues rather than iron like we have aliens amongst us and so we need to look at take a good look at ourselves and see how we're treating um, other species on earth and then saying well if we're kind of ashamed of how we're cohabitating with other species uh, on this planet, maybe we have some work to do before we can talk about encountering extraterrestrial life. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And you do explore the underworld as, as well, right? As a diver. So that's probably, uh, they're kind of two in the same. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so um, when we talk about my austere environment and expedition environment uh, experience, so the, the, we call them analog environments because they're in some way analogous to the space flight environment. And so um, when we talk about, so I've done expeditions at, at the Mars Desert Research Station. It looks like Tatooine if you're to Google a photo of it, um, but it's a, it's a it's a Mars habitat in the middle of the Utah desert and you're just surrounded by red rock everywhere you can look. And it's, you know, it, it feels like you're on Mars. And if you go outside your habitat, you have to suit up in your spacesuit so you don't, um, you know, perish in the Martian environment. And then coming to your point about um, diving and the in the underwater world, um, I gained my aquanaut designation on an, another analog mission, and this was the Neptune mission. So we it stands for Nautical Experiments in Physiology, Technology, and Underwater Exploration. So this was a five day mission we did in the Florida Keys at the Jules Undersea Lodge. Um, doing experiments in psychology and technology demonstrations in physiology. Um, and basically the commonality is you're working in this remote rural or not rural, but remote resource limited, isolated, confined space. You know, you're building those team dynamics pre-mission and continuing those in mission. You're doing science. Um, you you know, you're really kind of um, testing those skill sets, um, being a master of your own trade, but also a jack of multiple trades. Um, and so it's really funny because um, my commander on that mission, he had this T-shirt and it had this aquanaut um, with an umbilical and that umbilical led up into the umbilical of an astronaut on a spacewalk and his shirt said the same thing but different. And so really when we talk about analog environments for preparing us for space, it's same, same, but different. 
Wow. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you also jump out of planes. Is that correct? <laughs> I have my accelerated skydiver. Skydiver's license. Yeah. 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 So that was, um, yeah, go ahead. No, that's, I was just going to say like, I don't, I feel like you're like pushing all of the limits of, you know, as far as a physician, it must be like almost like experimental for you to like get yourself in these different environments and, and, you know, run personal tests and actual, you're doing experiments underwater and things like this. It's, is, is that what it is that, you know, sort of like, are you curious about all these different environments and how they play uh, on each other a different, same, same. Yeah, the commonality, there's there's subtle differences. Some are more individual, some are more team-based. Uh, one commonality is that these are all very what we call operational environments. So they're environments in which we have to continually be continually be uh, aware of our environment, of ourselves, of our teammates, uh, how they're changing, and how they affect our end goal, which uh, one could argue in skydiving is simply to pull the chute and make it down in one piece. Um, and then, you know, it's really useful for being able to make decisions on the fly in response response to changing parameters, um, being able to adjust and course correct when you need to, uh, and then being able to review your mistakes step by step, um, and then uh, debrief and say, how do I make it better? And, you know, a lot of that reminds me of being in the emergency room. You have all of these inputs coming into you at one time. Um, and you have to decide, you know, what is the one I need to act on? Which ones can I ignore? Which ones will meet the dip, mean the difference between life and death? Which ones, you know, can wait till later? And so there really are a lot of commonalities, um, whether you're talking about skydiving or, you know, running a recess in the emergency room. How, how do you decide what gets your attention, you know? And uh, like, I mean, even for, so thank you again, just like you've got so much on your plate. So coming here and being with us just means so much, but yeah. So how do you decide where you're going to spend your time? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so there's there's a few frameworks in which I think about it. And so um, the number one thing I tell people is there is a season for everything. So it's not like I'm piloting a plane and then jumping out of that plane and pulling my chute and <laughs> in the water and then emerging, you know, throwing off my snorkel and fins, running into the emergency room just in time to deliver baby. Like that's not what happens in my typical 24. Uh, it's, like a, it's like a Tom Cruise like uh, movie, you know, <laughs> Batman Brisbane scenario. And, you know, it's just as if you're an athlete who, you know, stars on the volleyball, hockey, lacrosse, basketball, badminton teams, you're not training for all those sports in the same um, period. There's a season for everything. So one thing is going to take precedence over others at any given time. And you have to be okay with that. And, you know, the advice I give to some of my mentees or, you know, when, just in conversation is if you're looking to expand your horizons and you're kind of looking to take on more, if you've been saying no a lot, um, start saying yes. But on the flip side, if you are at capacity, um, start learning to say no so that you can make your yeses count where you want them to. Um, because, you know, mid early to mid pandemic, I was finding that, you know, I wasn't able to contribute to the organizations that I really cared about in the way I wanted to. And that was a sign to me that I had to start to say no, so I could start building um, these legacies that I was really invested in. So sometimes there is, um, uh, you know, sometimes there is being intentional and realizing that this does not need to be done today, as long as it gets done, you know, in the intermediate or longer term. Uh, and then the other part of it is realizing that there is a positive power to saying no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What do you, um, what do you do for fun? Like when you're sort of, uh, looking to, 
you know, whether it's self-care or just like personal interests that you have outside of, you know, any one of these roles that, that you're in, uh, how, how do you like to spend your time? Yeah. Um, so recharging for me is really important. Uh, working out is a huge part of that. So, um, yeah, I often, um, well, not often, most days I try to work out. Um, I try to stick to an hour of cardio and then weights afterwards. Um, so that can be anywhere from 25 to 45 minutes, um, trying to get better about being diligent enough to stretch. Um, so that's really important to me. Um, that's just kind of my place where I recharge, where it's sort of like, oh, you know, I can't take a meeting right now. I'm at the gym or, you know, if it's going to be a lazier day that, you know, I can catch up on emails while I'm doing cardio, um, depending on what I'm doing. So, you know, it really does like, let me take control of my schedule and just say, this is my time and I'm going to spend spend it how I want. So that's really important to me. Nice. And what, um, what keeps you in Edmonton? You know, I mean, like, again, there feels like what you do can take you so many different places. We love our city. And, you know, obviously, our listeners love our city, too. So what keeps you here? Yeah, this is a place where I've grown up. My family's here. My parents are here. Um, and this has been it's, it's been such a privilege to watch Edmonton evolve, um, you know, in my many <laughs> decades here, I would say, um, you know, we're becoming world-class with respect to everything from the caliber of restaurants to um, the downtown um, core and how that's changed to um, really cool things that not a lot of people might know about, like the, the world-class caliber of machine learning and AI research that goes on at the U of A. Um, like there are, a, there is a lot of potential that I feel that we're just still you know, just kind of showing the tip of the iceberg of that there's just so many gems of, of innovation here, of art, of, of excellence here. Um, so, you know, it's really cool to be witness of that, witness to that, as well as um, take part in it. Yeah, amazing. What sort of uh, next steps for you? Like, um, what's your you know, you're five, 10, if you're looking into the future, what, what does the future look like for you? Yeah. So for the short term this year, there's a lot of cool expeditions coming up that I can't quite announce just yet, but, um, that's, um, keep an eye out for those that we'll be announcing soon. Um, there we, with our work at the international Institute for astronautical sciences, we do a lot of cool operational work. We do a lot of testing of spacesuits in space-like environments, including zero G. Um, so we're, finally off hiatus um, after the pandemic. So we're getting back to those very shortly. Um, and then that's beyond, you know, 2023, uh, continuing my work with exploration, expeditions, uh, austere environment medicine, and of course, getting to space. Amazing. Amazing. Is there anything that you would like to kind of end with anything that we you know missed on that you would like people to know about you or something exciting that's coming up? Um. Honestly, it's, uh, you know, I really hope that this, uh, this interview has gotten people excited. Um, there is a lot of cool innovation, um, exploration out there. Some of it is right within our own city. And some of it might just be your brains within our city that is waiting to, you know, act on your passion when it comes to innovation and exploration. So hopefully this has gotten your brain juices flowing. I mean, I can't wait just to watch and see all of the many, many things that you do here in the next, you know, like you said, one year, five year, 10 years. And um, yeah, see how many more things you're able to like check off of that <laughs> bucket list biography. And yeah, it's very, very impressive. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me to be on your show. I really appreciate it. If you were inspired by our show, 
please take a moment to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen and share with friends. You can always find show notes at loveyegshow.ca. Keep listening. Keep listening.